You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to our Life Spa podcast. Today, we have a really special guest, the author of quite an amazing book called The Abstinence Myth. His name is Adi Jaffe, and uh, he's a UCLA professor. Uh, he's had his own journey through addiction himself. Uh, he's been on Dr. Oz, Good Morning America. He's uh, really taking the whole addiction world by storm by giving us alternative, an, an alternative approach to how to deal with addiction without the blame, without the labels. I'm super happy and honored to have you here, Adi. Uh, thanks for joining us. My first question to you is like, what is the abstinence myth? Tell us about that. Mm. That's a great, great question. You know, a lot of people, when they hear that, they assume that I'm against abstinence somehow. Uh, but that's not at all the point of the book. The point of the book is that there are two primary myths around the addiction world um, that are holding us back from success. And we'll talk later about how it's absolutely clear that as a system, the addiction treatment world is failing those who need help. But uh, two major myths. The first one is that abstinence is a requirement at the beginning of a commitment to recovery. That's the number one myth. Uh, and the second one is that abstinence is even the right way to measure how well somebody is doing in terms of their recovery. So, you know, we've built an entire industry in addiction on the idea that somebody has to be willing to quit to get help. And that the way to measure their recovery is by how many days sober they have. Everybody gets really, really excited about celebrating how many days sober they have. So those are the two primary myths that I'm uh, kind of trying to dispel in the book. Which is really, you know, I mean, there's really kind of one road to take here, and it's the AA road. And uh, yeah. when you go to an AA meeting, I've been there, not with, you know, not for myself, but for others, friends, and so on. And it is all exactly about that. It's about how many days you've been sober, and you celebrate that, and you have to, you know, and the whole thing is 100% abstinence. So, so, you know, AA is pretty famous. It's been around for a very yeah. long time. It's, people swear by it. They live their life by it. Their sponsors and their relationships are huge for spiritual development and growth. What's the difference? Why is this better? Yeah. Well, you know, instead of saying why is it better, I'd like to say I'd like to say it this way. Yeah. It is clear as you examine the data from the last hundred years that we have barely taken a small bite out of the addiction problem. Uh, since we've been tracking it, the addiction problem as a percentage of our population has not changed. It has stayed at about. 10 to 12% of the population struggling with addictions throughout the entire 100 years as AA has existed. Then you look into the more official professional addiction treatment um, recovery system. And I was shocked to discover this in my postdoc. It's what made me leave academia for the most part. 90% um, of people who struggle with addiction do not even get into professional treatment. And 85% don't even look for it. Now, if you think for a second about any problem, obesity, diabetes, cancer, acute pain, the flu, the idea that 85% of the people who have the problem wouldn't look for help is insane. I mean, and, and if you go into mental health, it's the same sort of thing. Like, it's not true that 85% people, of people with depression don't seek help for depression. They do. So what is it about addiction? Well, I think the problem is that for a century now, we've been blaming, maybe even longer than that, We've been blaming the people who struggle with addiction for not seeking the help. And there's, uh, unfortunately, there's so many 
ridiculous sentiments about why that is. And it's the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease and all these ridiculous notions. I think it's actually just because the solution sucks. And most people know that the solution sucks. And so they're not interested in it. I equate it in the book, um, the recovery industry believing that it's the fault of those who struggle with addiction that they call addicts and alcoholics for not coming in and getting help um, is the equivalent of opening up a restaurant. And when nobody shows up to it saying, man, people must really hate good food. What's wrong with them? Instead of asking the obvious question, which is why nobody come into my restaurant? Does my service suck? Am I in the wrong part of town? Does my food taste horrible? Uh, am I too expensive, right? There are good reasons why people are not coming into the addiction industry, and they have very little, if anything, to do with those who struggle. My job is really to try to get as many people help as possible. So it's not about what is better or worse once people get the help. It's about the fact that, let's just be honest about it. Nobody wants what AA is offering. Literally 90% of people with addiction problems are not going to AA for a reason. Let's offer them other options so they can get help and stop dying. And I think one of the big reasons you talk about in your book is the, the shame and the blame and the branding, a lifelong kind of, you know, brand that you are a broken, addicted human being and you'll never be as good as anybody else. Is that a big part of why people don't go? They don't want to get that brand? Huge. I did a, I did a longitudinal study when I was a postdoc at UCLA and we used an online treatment search tool to find people who are looking for help and then ask them questions about did you engage if you did what made you go in the treatment and did you not engage um cost and logistics were the number one and number two reasons and we understand that right treatment is expensive and it takes a lot of effort to get into but the third one was shame and we got that through questions like i would rather deal with it by myself i don't want to talk to others about it or i feel shame about being a, you know a, uh, an alcoholic is the term um and the thing about the shame component, it comes so much, as you just mentioned, to these terms, addiction, addict, alcoholic. And I, I actually, I find so much resistance for this only within the devout uh, AA community. So I'll get a lot of people who are 15, 20, 30 years sober saying, I don't feel shame around my term as an alcoholic. And I say, well, that's great for you now. You're 15, 20, 30 years in your recovery. I promise you that when somebody first told you, you have to call yourself an alcoholic, you didn't like it and you felt shame about it back then. And I'm not trying to help somebody who's 20 years in recovery. They found what works for them. All the more power to them. I'm trying to help those 90% of people who are out there still struggling. And there is good, solid data, including for people who are heavy-duty supporters of AA, like, um, like Dr. John Kelly, a you know, Harvard um, physician, who's very outspoken about his support for 12-step recovery. And yet the discovery that calling people addict, alcoholic are shaming and stigmatizing labels and the people who experience shame and stigma are less likely to engage in treatment and less likely to continue with it in the face of shame. And if they drop off, they're less likely to be successful. Mm, wow. There's been a lot of articles coming out in the last week or two uh, about the rate of alcohol abuse beginning to be more on the rise. I mean, we've always been sort of a, a alcohol drinking species, but um, it seems like there's more people drinking alone than ever before. Uh, yeah. And that seems to be a new, a new statistic that's sort of very worrying, right? Yeah, I think, the, I mean, obviously the COVID scare and this thing that we've all experienced in this last year and a half here 
has driven a lot of people into deep, deep traumatic experience in their daily lives and oftentimes isolated while doing it. We know that being isolated makes it even harder to have resiliency in the face of trauma. And so we've seen a lot more people go into drug and alcohol use uh, specifically to deal with those issues. And obviously, I mean, you know, we talked a little bit before we went on here about your leaning towards Ayurveda and it's pretty obvious, you know, 200, 300, 400 years ago, people considered alcohol a medicine. And in the context of the physical struggles and pains that people went through back then, you know, it, it probably was medicinal in that way. But the role of alcohol as medicinal is maybe acute, right? If you're going through a severe stressor in the moment and you can't handle it, maybe alcohol can help you with that. On the battlefield, you're having severe pain and opioids are not available. Maybe alcohol can help you with that. But alcohol is not a, an ongoing medicinal tool to be used for the enhancement of your well-being. And I'm, by the way, again, right, I wrote a book called The Absinthe Myth. I'm not sober. Uh, and yet I'm not ever under the delusion that alcohol is great for me uh, when I'm drinking. I use it as a, as a light stress reduction tool or because I really enjoy the taste of it in very specific situations. I think part of what we need to do moving forward is give our society, the, the, the people we love and care for within our society, real actionable tools that help them resolve the underlying issues because of what they decide to end up drinking. And until we do that, we at least need to put aside the stigma and the shame for those who choose drink in the face of the incredible stress, anxiety, pressures, um, and shame that they experience in daily life in the society we live in. I just want to hit on this for one second. You know, a lot of people will say when we have this conversation, well, you know, why not just call a spade a spade? Call somebody who struggles with alcohol an alcoholic. Just call somebody who struggles with addiction an addict. And I think we have to be really careful around the use of language. Uh, this is really troubling for those of us who are a little bit older. You know, I'm in my mid-40s going on 50. And sometimes we can get so caught up in the way things have always been that we misconstrue the impact they've always had. And one of the places that I really urge a lot of people to think of when they think of, well, it's just language, who cares, is think about racial epitaphs and think about LGBTQ language from 50 years, 100 years ago, and think of how comfortable you are with that language now, right? What made those terms that are so asinine at this point, it would be weird for me to even say them here, pointing out their weakness, right? We don't even want to speak them anymore. Aren't they also just words? And yet we understand now that they're so disempowering and so judgmental and full, so full of shame and stigma, we wouldn't even consider uttering them. I think we're going to end up getting to the same exact time frame with people who struggle with alcohol and addiction. It's just, unfortunately, we have to get ourselves past this point. We believe that they are really such sick, demented, uh, helpless and powerless humans that, you know, we may as well call them whatever we feel like. Yeah, no, you're, you know, I think we've learned more than ever in the last four or five years, the power of, you know, the power of words and what we speak and how it can hurt people or help people. Um, what's really interesting is you talked about how you still drink, you know, and you've had quite a history yourself, uh, you know, dealing with abuse and your addiction. This would be a great time for you. You have an amazing story. Uh, I'd love for you to take some time and just tell our listeners, you know, what you went through and how you got through it and how you could actually be now after all these, uh, I'm not sure how many years it's been for you, 
but you know you're able to still drink that's sort of like the big you know absolute taboo thing no one once you're labeled you don't ever if you go back you're going to drink your life away again one little sip you have a little rum cake and you're over it's over for you that kind of a thing you're the exception to that rule yeah i don't actually you know the weird thing is i don't think i'm the exception to that rule i think the rule so you've heard of confirmation bias before right and uh, confirmation bias is this organizing principle in your brain that allows you to pay really close attention to the things you already believe are true and pay almost no attention to the things that disprove your current beliefs it's a, it's a perplexing uh, bias in our brain. But what it does is it keeps you in line with the, the way you see the world. We just saw it play out fully in the Trump versus Democratic world uh, for four years. So we don't need more proof that it exists. You know, it's as if we both lived in completely different universes. Well, if you believe that people who drink and have a problem with drinking at any point in time can never drink again, or if they have an addiction to any drug, they can never drink again, then you will see a lot of evidence towards that. But I think once you understand that actually the vast majority of people who struggle with drugs and alcohol at one point in time do not struggle with them long term, it can completely shift the way you see things. But I'll explain my version of things. I started drinking when I was 14 years old. Um, like many kids in high school, I was socially awkward. I felt very strange around other kids. And um, a lot of people told me that that didn't play out. They didn't see that in me. But internally, I was constantly anxious about fitting in. And uh, at one sleepaway camp, a kid gave me a big handle of warm vodka. It tasted terrible. And if the only thing it did for me was make me almost want to throw up when I drank it, I would have never had alcohol again. But within 15 minutes, I felt warm and fuzzy. And I had no problem talking to the guys and feeling like one of the guys. And I even felt comfortable talking to girls. I got to kiss a girl and fool around with her that night. And to me, as a 14-year-old awkward boy, that was like the holy grail of existence. So obviously I started drinking every weekend that I had the opportunity to do it. By the time I got to college, I was smoking weed too. And I was drinking every single day. I was smoking weed every single day and, and in heavy quantities. And that continued until I found meth. Uh, but I was 21 or so when I found meth, 21 and, 20, 20 and a half, 21. Um, and I found it almost by mistake. I was uh, behind studying for finals and I was really, really behind. I was sort of depressed because I was just in a breakup and I wasn't doing well. And a friend said to me, hey, if you do a little bit of this stuff, you'll be able to study for finals. Gave me a little bump of meth, uh, a tiny little line. And they were right. I studied for like 14 hours straight. I didn't even know that was possible. I found out later I have ADHD. Um, and it was like this magic kingdom got open for me. And so gradually I started using more and more meth. It has a pretty terrible tolerance. And so pretty quickly I got to the place where I was using it every day. Within a year, I was using meth every day. And then for the next four and a half, five years, I was using meth all day, every day. Started selling the drug in order to even have the money because it, it gets pretty expensive by the end. And uh, started selling the drugs. And now I was doing drugs, selling drugs or recovering from drugs every single day for about five years. Um, and that was my experience. So from the age of 14 to the age of, you know, 26 or so, my, es my use escalated until it got me to exactly what you would consider, and I'm putting this in air quotes for those listening, a drug, a classic drug addict to look like. I would wake up in the morning, tell myself on some days, hey, you don't need meth anymore, you're okay. By noon or two o'clock, I'm smoking meth out of glass pipe again. Everybody I know is a drug user or a drug dealer. Um, all my money is coming from drugs and all my money is going towards drugs. I was living a life that was completely surrounded by, affected by, and controlled by drugs, right? Period. I tried to quit multiple times, couldn't make it happen. Um, 
And that was where I ended up. And when you people hear that classic story, I look like a quote unquote drug addict. That's exactly what I look like. Um, I'd been arrested four times by that point, but I got arrested one more time. And that one time um, was on a motorcycle. I had a lot of drugs on me. Um, I had about a half a pound of cocaine on me at the time because I was selling it and I was driving around delivering. The cops found the drugs. They realized I must have more connections and more money related to drugs. And so they really tried to squeeze me hard to, um, to tell on other people that I were, I considered my friends and I was selling to or, or buying from, and I wouldn't do it. And after three months of trying to get me to do this, they uh, decided to just take me in, in a much, much bigger way. They raided my house, the full SWAT team, you know, 18 cops pointing guns at my head on a Saturday morning. I had a meth pipe on one side of my bed. I had a gun on the other, like exactly what you would see in a news article and expect me to go away for the rest of my life and never come up. Um, and that's how it started out. I went to rehab, failed out of rehab because I started using again within a month. And in every way, I was proving the model right. Um, and then I had this conversation with my dad after being kicked out of that first rehab. And something really bizarre happened, which was I'd perplexed my parents so much about what to do. My dad asked this question. He said, you just destroyed three months of trying to get you back on track. Something like thirty dollars or $40,000 we just spent. You're going to go to prison for decades. What are you doing? What, what do you want me to do now to make this better? And what was different about that moment versus any other moment is in the past, my dad would always tell me what to do. He would say, okay, go here and sit and I'll arrange another rehab or I'll figure out how to get us out of this. But he was so perplexed. He didn't know what to do. And so he asked me this question. And the moment he asked the question, it dawned on me that he can't solve this problem for me. And I have to figure out how to do it on my own. And I said that to him. I said, look, you know what? You can't do anything. This is not your problem to fix. I have to fix this problem. I said, I don't know what that means right now yet, but hold on. I'm going to come up with an answer. And again, to be very, very transparent and clear, I spent the next two to two and a half weeks using drugs all day, every day. The only difference was I now knew I had to find a solution. So I would also call sober living homes and call these other places to try to get some help. And I was barely doing it, but eventually about two and a half weeks later, uh, I went to an interview at a sober living house. One of the things that bothered me about the rehab was it was $10,000 a month. And I couldn't fathom having my parents pay $10,000 a month for my screw up. And it made me feel again, more shame and, and, and guilt. This sober living house was about $900 a month. And I checked in, I was so messed up. I, I had sunglasses on at 9 PM when I went to this place for the interview thinking, you know, I don't want them to see me um, so high. But I, I went to the place, I committed to go in there and I stayed sober for eight months after that conversation, which meant that I went in front of the judge at the end of my trial, sober for eight months. And instead of giving me about 13 years in prison, he gave me one year having seen the transition in me. Um, but he did this thing, another really smart thing. He, he did something called a suspended sentence above my head. So he said, look, I'm giving you a chance, but if you screw this up, I'm adding seven years to whatever next screw up you have. And so I had, I called it like this sore that was just hanging right over my head that said, mm -hmm. look, you know, you just got to make the right choice at every moment in time. And I would argue I've been doing that since then and always just trying to make the best choice that I can. Um, I stayed sober for three years, completely sober. And then I was studying psychology in graduate school. And I found these other answers, these answers that nobody was giving me in AA. Nobody was giving me in these other traditional recovery systems. And I was like, 
how is it that in graduate school, I'm learning about all these neuroscience and learning and, and abnormal psychology concepts and therapeutic approaches. And then in, in rehab, I'm told, well, just go to a meeting and everything will be fine. And I decided to run this experiment. It was 2005. And I said, look, I told my, my parents, I said, I'm going to try this experiment that they all talk about is going to be an abject failure for me. I'm going to take a drink and I'm going to see what happens. And I told them flat out, I said, don't wait for me to lose my life like I did last time. You know what I'm like when I'm deep in my addiction. I don't answer phone calls. I'm short. I get mad at everybody all the time. I don't care. I don't show up. I'm late. If you start seeing that trend, my experiment is failing. Get me back. Don't worry about whether I'm not using drugs or not. Don't worry about whether I'm lying to you. I don't care about any of that. You know what I behave like. And I said, I talked to them for six months before I ever took my first drink. And what I discovered in my, what is it, 14, 15 years since is the following. Self-exploration, self-growth, learning, becoming a better human being is a never-ending, ongoing process. Um, it's my job to keep, you know, keep my, my head down and do the best that I can at continuing to become a better and better version of me. As long as I don't stop that, the drinking doesn't matter. The drinking is something, there are absolutely times where I rely on it more than I should otherwise. And there are absolutely times when I don't drink at all for two, three weeks at a time. The drinking is not my coping strategy for life. It is one in dozens of tools that I have. It's an ongoing process. It'll continue being an ongoing process probably until the day I take my last breath. But what I was able to discover and the reason why I wrote the book and the Ignited Recovery Method and the Hero Program we have online and all those things is I wanted to explain to people, drinking is not your problem. Drugs are not your problem. Drinking and drugs are the things you use to hide from your actual problems. You can keep using them, but just keep fixing and fixating on and, and focusing on whatever it is that is driving the use for you. And if you do that, you will have progressive ongoing growth towards becoming the person you want to become towards alleviating that inner pain and discovering the truest version of yourself. And there will be a time, and I've seen this happen with dozens and hundreds of people now, there will be a time where the balance between your need for coping and that internal struggle equalizes and you no longer need to run away from your daily experience in life. And it can happen fast or it can happen gradually. But if you do the work, it will happen. And then all of a sudden you realize you don't have an addiction anymore. It just, you've outgrown it. And that's what I'm trying to get people to do. Wow. <clears throat> you know, that's exactly why I thought it'd be great to have you on talk to our, our audience, you know, from the Ayurvedic perspective, 95% um, <clears throat> of the stuff we think and say and do as adults come from impressions from the first six years of life, right? Mm -hmm. And then we create this personality that needs approval, appreciation, and be loved by everybody else in the outside world, become addicted to that reward chemistry. And traditional cultures would, of course, you know, use rites of passage to free yourself from needing love to start to, you know, doing you instead of doing whatever you can to get them to love and appreciate you. And Ayurveda has so many tools, like, you know, I did a bunch of uh, articles uh, on the science behind Ayurveda and yoga, breathing techniques. And I, I, wrote, I wrote articles about the science behind, I don't know, five, six, seven, maybe 10 different breathing techniques, pranayama breathing techniques. And the common denominator, every single one of those, 
was neuroplasticity. It changed brain waves, you know, increased parasympathetic, decreased sympathetic, all that. But it actually created a different set of, uh, a different level of neuroplasticity. It really changed the, the brain chemistry so we can drive down new roads versus the old road that makes us do the same dumb thing again and again and again. So there are these really hardcore tools in Ayurveda, doing breathing techniques and chanting and, and you know, yoga, breathing, meditation. They all are designed to make us conscious, to do exactly what you said, to find out who we truly are and have enough courage to let who we are out, right? Yes. So, so these are like actual tools of doing it. And I, when I read your book and I, and, I was, and I listened to your story, I was like, I got to know what are some of the tools that you said, if you do the work, What's the work? Because I, yes. I'm just so yep. curious to know how you get people to get that to that level without having these mechanical tools, which are backed by science, to actually change those old, you know, emotional patterns of behavior that are locked in our brainstem. Love it, love it. So a couple of things. First of all, I can't wait to have you on for our ignited heroes to teach those uh, techniques and the science behind them, because we're actually always collecting more tools. That's actually the goal for my my Sparks platform online is. There are a lot of these tools and my goal is to get out there in the world, collect more and more of these tools and then create a machine learning algorithm in our, in our computer system that matches people's needs to the tools that potentially might help them figure out whether the tool is helpful or not. And if the tool is helpful, that's great. Keep it. If it wasn't helpful, dump that tool and bring somebody, something else on. Because my, the key learning that I had was everybody actually needs a different toolkit. Some tools that work incredibly well for one human actually don't work well at all or moderately for another. And instead of us always arguing about what are the best tools, let's give them a whole selection of tools. So I'll talk about some of the ones that we have, but I mean this very seriously. I'd love to have you teach our people some of those tools and have them exposed to your work because I could see the, the power and I know the power of breath work, for instance. So I sneak one of the tools, but you already spoke about it. The beginning of each module has a breathing meditation in it. Um, and I don't call it breathing meditations. I just talk to them at the beginning. So it's a video recorded uh, session. And at the beginning of each one, I introduce different types of meditations, labeling meditations, simple breath meditations, visualizations, all these different elements. Um, and I just tell them, hey, look, you've had, uh, you've had a stressful day to, to now and you're watching this video. Let's just bring us all back to the space. I'm trying to create presence. I'm trying to create a state of mindfulness, right? Um, so that's a tool that I just sneak in there. Another thing that I, I try to teach everybody, and this has to do with the neuroplasticity you mentioned so early and so well, people make the mistake all the time. Again, unfortunately, I, I work in an industry built on this neuroplasticity error. Literally, the entire system is built on an error. And the error is that in order to deal with an alcohol problem, you have to stop drinking, right? That's what everybody's trying to do is there's abstinence. They're trying to stop drinking. That's not what you have right. to do. We have to do is replace the drinking with another behavior. Um, I met this woman who was the head of the Massachusetts Health and Human Services Department when I was a graduate student on the bus on the way to a conference. And as we were sitting there on this eight-minute bus ride, we just talked about our research. And she was doing obesity research, and I was doing addiction research. Seemingly different, but really obesity is oftentimes around biological functioning and addiction to sugar, fat, etc. right? So she said the sentence to me, she probably doesn't remember that she ever met me, but she said the sentence to me. She said, you know, in my 40 years of research, one of the key elements that I learned is that we are terrible at getting anybody to stop doing anything. We are much, much better at getting them to do something else instead. 
And it was like a bomb went off in my head. Because again, I work in a field that keeps trying to get people to stop doing stuff. Stop smoking crack. Stop drinking. Stop using meth. Stop taking pills. And here's this woman who's been for 40 years working in a field that tried to get people to stop eating too much and, and becoming obese. And she gives me this little nugget. And so one of the tools I tell everybody that says, stop trying to quit. That is not the tool. Find replacement behaviors and find ways to replace. So that's a secondary tool that we use with people all the time. And then some of the practices that I've put in my head have more to do with those underlying psychological mechanisms. So for instance, People with addiction struggle a lot with perfectionism and negative self-talk, a lot. That notion that addicts, again, I'm putting that in air quotes, are people who don't care about others, are amotivated, are lazy, that you can't count on them. I think it's actually completely wrong. People who struggle with addiction often started out as perfectionists who never feel like they're good enough and never feel like um, they're measuring up. The problem is that repeated failure in the, in the face of black and white thinking has gotten them to just give up on trying. So we do a lot of work on changing, which is still neuroplasticity, changing the negative self-talk. What does that mean? It means repeating positive affirmations, um, reading success statements of themselves that they write on their own, getting them to imagine and then, um, and then visualize scenarios in which they are successful in their go ongoing struggles. So instead of constantly focusing on all the negative self-talk that's already there, we implement and then embed positive ways of approaching the problem that they're struggling with. So those are just three examples, for instance. <clears throat> wow. Amazing. You know, I, I love it. And it's, it dovetails so well. You know, there's an aspect of the Vedas called Donner Ved. Donner means the Donner Asana, the Bo Asana, right? And it's all about the, you know, we know in the Kudo in Japan and, and the, the martial arts of archery. And it's all about pulling back the bow. And there's a, there's a saying in uh, maybe the most important saying of all the Vedic literature, which is to it means it says it's it's actually in Sanskrit it's Yogastha Kuru Kamani, which means first establish being and then perform action. So if you're gonna pull back a bow, right, and you're trying to shoot a target and you're moving this thing around because you're nervous or shaking, you won't even find the arrow, let alone hit the target, because because it's exponentially gonna be distorted if you're moving the arrow. So when you pull back the bow, this is talking about becoming innerly, you know, finding your inner stillness, your silence pull back the bow, become still, determine what's real, what's not real. And then once you have established that, you take action, you shoot the bow. And that's what we call transformational action. And that's where you know the, the, the tools of, of becoming more aware of what's real and what's not real, becoming aware of how addicted you are to so many things from coffee to smoothies, to candy, to shopping, to malls or whatever it is. And then beginning to realize that 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 is all based on you getting reward from the outside world. Yes. And how are you going to you know start to explore your own inner space and find the joy that resides and waits for you inside of you? And that's by taking action to instead of get to give. So we have people do things like you know random acts of kindness, looking for ways to at your grocery store, you know, engage with the cashier, talk to people, notice their earrings, their different colored fingernails, ask them about, it, get out of yourself, start asking them, and as you start laying down new neural pavement by by randomly acting on you know on, on these levels of kindness, you start laying down these new roads in your brain, and all of a sudden 
then all of a sudden you come to the situation where you're you're all home alone and didn't have a good day and you start thinking about your addiction your alcohol your sex or your drug whatever now you have now you, you don't only have door number one you have which is the door you drove down every day for like in your case 15 years of addiction now you have another door that's sort of starting to appear which is I don't have to go down door number one again and again and again, do the same dumb thing again and again, you know, get involved with the same kind of person relationship again and again. You know, I can actually take a, take a risk now to take an action step based on my truth and free myself from those patterns. Here's what I love about everything you're saying right now. Um, and I, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about because we do them in the, in the program and I just want to talk about the parallels. But I hope everybody listening right now understands how everything you just pointed out is completely counter to the idea that what you do with somebody who struggles with addiction is drill it into the head that they're an addict who's never going to get better and is going to be sick forever. That notion in which is our entire field is built on identifying an alcoholic every day when you get up and identifying your powerless and identifying, et cetera, all these things. What you're doing is you're relieving people of the, their ability to believe that they can change. Whereas what you're talking about right now, and this is so crucial to the work that we do is actually empowering them and making them understand the deep strength they have in creating the reality within which they live. And what you're doing is you're saying, look, your past may have looked like this, but let's create your present and your future in a very different vein. So one of the ways that, that I did that um, about four or five years ago was uh, I was using this tool called the Wheel of Life, really easily accessible. A lot of life coaches use it online. And uh, I'd used it with maybe about a thousand people. And I'd realized it, it uh, measures your level of functioning on eight different areas of life. So like romance, finance, career, fundamental creation, things like that. And as I did it with more and more people and then the conversation that followed those, uh, those assessments, I realized there were two things missing from that wheel. And so I expanded and created the ignited wheel of life, which has 10 slices instead of eight. And I added two slices, purpose and contribution. Because what I realized was that people could be doing well financially in terms of the romance, in terms of their family, in terms of the place they live. But if they didn't feel like they were actively contributing members of the, the world in which they function, and if they didn't feel like there was a purpose driving the daily reason for being, the rest of the stuff didn't matter as much. And <clears throat> what you're talking about is such a simple thing. So a lot of times people will tell me in a group that they're struggling heavily. And I'll ask them, you know, what were a couple of the areas on the wheel of life that, uh, that struggle for you? And they will inevitably talk about purpose and contribution. I say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of three ways in which you're going to make the world of the life of the people around you better in the next 24 hours. Give somebody some money, help a friend who's in need, anything. Like just, and they, they have to come up with three ways. And a lot of times they don't understand initially why this is going to help them. But the problem is that if you don't feel like you are contributing, if you don't feel like you have purpose, you don't feel like you matter. And when you don't feel like you matter, it just takes away the, the joy, the reason for being, the, the motivation from acting in any way. And if you're going to sit at home and it doesn't matter if you drink, do drugs or don't drink or don't do drugs, why not choose the path of least resistance or the path of least pain or the one that makes the time pass? But if you matter, if what you do affects negatively or positively the life of the people around you, it feels like a waste to spend three or four hours drunk because 
there are people you could help. There are people whose lives you can make better during those four hours. And that's a big transition for a lot of people who, until they met me when they were struggling with addiction, were told they're drug addicts and alcoholics, and they're going to have a disease that will never <laughs> let them go. And, and the feeling they had before was, oh my God, I'm stuck like this forever. Why even do the work? How do you get people to do that? I mean, they're so wrapped up in, you know, me, 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 you know, my life's miserable. I need, I need, I need from everybody else. The culture supports the need for all the reward chemistry. And what you're saying is that you're going to get everybody to, to give, which we all know, we know not we all know, but it's well, it's very clear that the more that you give, the more filled up you are. There's an interesting study about this. This uh, they gave a group of people uh, the ability to give a gift, one gift in a hedonistic way, where I gave you the gift, but uh, but I was super attached to you liking the gift, you know. And then they gave the gift in a eudaimonic way, where I had no attachment to you liking it or saying thank you. It was just a free gift. I just thought I just had so much joy just giving the gift to you. The other one I was attached to the outcome. And they measured the genetic impact on that. And they found that when I gave the gift in a hedonistic way, where I really wanted them to like it, it had a negative impact on the, on the genetic code of the person I gave the gift to. So they can tell that you're really full of it. It's all about you. But when I gave the gift in a eudaimonic way, where no attachment, it actually positively changed the genetic code of that person. So when we think about it from a deeper level, if I'm going to give to you fully from my heart, eudaimonically, with no expectation to get anything in return, the person I'm giving it to is going to feel the difference and they're going to feel oh, yeah. safe enough to open up the delicate petals of their heart, their flower and be who they are. Yeah. But if everybody John, in the world is, is going around, you know, wanting to get from everybody else, getting in a hedonistic way, this no one feels safe enough to let the delicate petals of their flower open. So we all stay locked in our own self and we never get to get. This is going to sound um, like a reach for anybody who's never been to one of our groups. But the way I get them to change the perception is by exactly what you just talked about is by fully understanding their own capacity to change and embodying nothing but that expectation of them. Here's what I'm saying. I think this is this gets to the crux of why I wrote this book and why I um, why I preach what I preach. And some people think I'm crazy in our industry and it's all good with me. I see the failure in our system and I don't wonder why it happens. Look, it's this clear. If I walk into a room full of sick people and I don't believe that they can get better, I will never be able to heal them. I hope that's clear, right? If you're a physician walking into an ER and you say, man, in the ER, everybody just dies all the time. People constantly die in the ER. There's stab wounds or, you know, aggravated assaults. They're, they've been shot. There's an ER doc can't do any good people just die in the ER, more people will die. More people will die in that ER doc's uh, room than a typical ICU. Why? Their belief drives it. that same energy exchange that you mentioned. They're going to see situations that could be saved, think that they can't and leave them alone. They're going to look at patients in the face that could have been improved by the right exchange and make them believe that they're going to die and they will die sooner. And my entire point, and I'm, I'm being a little, um, I'm being a little forward in this because you started the question off with how do you do this? Our assumption about people who struggle with addiction is wrong. There is nothing wrong. There's nothing damage in their faculty to change. We have shown them 
that they are unable to change. And by doing that, we've impressed it upon them that they're stuck. And what we do in our groups is very different. I start the conversation with them saying this, look, you're not an addict. You're not an alcoholic. You're somebody who, who's been struggling and been suffering. And you're obviously looking for a way out because you're here in this conversation. You never have to prove to me that you want a way out. I'm going to give you tools. I'm going to give you opportunities to talk. And your job is to look for the tools that seem to you like they're a fit. I don't sit there with them and go, tell me what's wrong. Tell me what happened in the past. Tell me what, how you've been wrong. I say, things have happened to you in the past. That's great, but that was yesterday. We have to make today better. So let's talk about how you're going to build up. And I assume that they all have the ability to do it. And I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I've never had a resistant client, but they're in the single percentage points. One out of 100, four out of 100, maybe come to me and they say, no, but I can't be fixed because A, B, and C, and D happen to me. And then typically what is great, because we do a lot of group work, is I'll show them something. I have a, a woman, uh, her name's Aaliyah, and I'm not giving anything away because she's becoming a coach with us and she's very public about her change at Ignited. Incest before the age of three, multiple sexual assaults and essentially ongoing <clears throat> rape through her teenage years, terrible family environment, kitchen sink, drug use. She would use anything that was in front of her. Her sister is an addiction specialist psychiatrist who had tried to help her for five years before she ever found Ignited, she only found Ignited after putting a gun in her mouth and trying to shoot herself, but the gun jammed and it didn't work. And so she went on this rampage in a car trying to drive her car off of something or into something so she would die. And then she heard me talk on the radio about how there's a completely different way of looking at addiction. She pulled over to the side of the road, called her psychiatrist sister and said, I think I found something at the time. Our services were more expensive. They were a thousand dollars. And she said, can I borrow the money to do this thing? She's now been sober for two and a half years, almost three years. Um, she's becoming a coach in the Ignited program. She, she even got Ignited tattooed on her arm because it saved her life. She got all her kids back from the, the experience. She was the quintessential example of somebody that everybody else just gave up on. And I'm, I'm not willing to see people that way. I'm not willing to accept that there's anybody who's gone far enough. And I think part of that is informed by my own experience, right? You're talking to a guy who was a daily meth addict, was facing 13 to 18 years in prison, you know, got kicked out of rehab for using. Everybody assumed I was done. And I wasn't, I wasn't even started. I was 26, 27 when I got out of jail. I'm now 44 years old. I've had a completely different life since. And I know that that's inside every person I talk to. I'm not willing to let them give up. And they see that in me. And then they go, oh, there may be a completely different version of me that exists here. Let me go look for that. Wow. <clears throat> You're such a great example. You know, I mean, you clearly... Uh, I, I'm so honored to really talk to you because, uh, you know, from the Ayurvedic perspective, just like you said, we never um, take people through the mud of what they did wrong and, and, you know, have them go through everything that went wrong with them. And, uh, and then they become so kind of steeped in the mud of their own actions and they never feel like they can ever get out of that. And uh, you obviously have found your passion and, um, and I think it's just really fascinating. There's a, there's an, in Ayurveda, there's something called the four aims of life. And the first one is Kala, which is 
uh, pleasure. But each of these aims are all about finding the deeper meaning and pleasure. Of course, when we're young, we want to go do stuff, get things. But the real pleasure comes from having a connection, a heart-to-heart -heart connection with other people. The other one is Artha, which is wealth. You know, we all want to make a million dollars and get rich and retire, right? When we ask the American way. But wealth is, you know, the whole point of understanding, getting wealthy, raise your family, have enough to provide for them, but then also not being attached to that wealth, not being attached to all that, because that can, that can really govern you, control you. Mm. You, know, you, don't see, you don't see a lot of really happy, wealthy people. And the F one is, is Dharma. We always think of Dharma as finding the right job, you know. But it isn't finding the right job. Dharma, from that Vedic perspective, is aligning yourself with the laws of nature, living in sync with the natural harmony of, of you know, being honored in integrity. There, I wrote an article called, about epidemics. And uh, Adi, you're not going to believe this, but 2,500 years ago, they wrote a book about, they wrote, a, the, the textbook of Ayurveda wrote about uh, epidemics. And they literally said that the cause of epidemics on the planet is corruption at the highest levels of heads of state, which filter down to the people, to the merchants, which pollute the waters, the air, the streams, the, the seasons change, and the whole world becomes, you know, unlivable because of that level of corruption. And it's just, you know, talking about Dharma, it's about living in sync with the, with the fundamental rule, which is to be you know, honest and have integrity. Um, we, we talked about fake news. There was an interesting study that came out just last week that showed that they gave people, about 800 people, a Facebook, uh, and the people who said they thought they knew the difference between fake news and real news. And they gave people a sample of fake news and real news from Facebook that they made up. And the people who actually, who actually thought they were the best at determining fake news from real news were absolutely the worst. And those are the ones who are actually disseminating the fake news because they thought that it was actually real. So that whole confirmation bias you talked about, we become steeped in these old patterns. And I just want to you know, just acknowledge you and thank you for the work you're doing because I think so many people are so, you know, I've been to an AA meeting and, and uh, you know, it was hard to be there. Um, you know, amazing at the same time to be there because the people there were successful at doing their thing. It was, that's where you go and you celebrate. But sad because you know, how many people were in the room and, uh, mm. and uh, how the people that I went with, you know, really struggled with their addiction and uh, didn't follow through because they didn't want to be labeled. They, did, they couldn't stand up and say, I'm an alcoholic. They just couldn't say it, you know. And I think what you're doing is, you know, is absolutely brilliant. And you have something called the Ignited, the IGNTD, yeah. which, which, yeah. Uh, which means what? Tell us what that is. Yeah, you know, um, when I was starting to do, first of all, thank you for saying all that. It's, um, you know, coming from the person that I was 18, 19, 20 years ago, um, I find it magical and empowering and humbling all at once that I get to do this every day now, because you're so right. I've worked with some of the wealthiest people on the face of the planet, like literally just, you know, multiple planes and multiple yachts and multiple continents kind of wealth. And um, it has nothing to do with happiness at all. And, and that allowed me to give up and understand that money is there as a service. And as long as it's a service to something that means and has truth for you, it's great. Otherwise, it's, it's useless. And it's actually sometimes disempowering. But um, Ignited grew out of this notion of me trying to really sit down and say, okay, what has worked for me? And what have I seen work for other people? And how do I do that? And that's, again, remember, 
um, I used to run a rehab. And when I realized purpose and contribution are such massive parts, first of all, they become massive parts of my own life in the service of my recovery. But it is, it's also part of AA, right? And AA service is a massive part of their work. The only thing I don't like about AA is the shame and the stigma around the labeling. And I'm, I'm not big on religion either. So, you know, the, the leading there, but some people are, and it's fine for them. I, start, I started trying to understand, like, how can I create a way of looking at this that gets people to understand quickly the goal? And when I understood the purpose and having a real commitment sense to why am I contributing? Why do I matter? When that is the driving engine, the fire, if you will, excuse the pun, under what it is that works for my recovery, I'm trying to get people ignited. I'm trying to get people to find their purpose, to find their internal flame. Because what yeah. I found is when you have that, again, look, I may have a bad day with drinking, but the next day I wake up and I want to do better because I matter and the things I do matter. And when you don't have that, everything else can be connected and it still won't be enough. So Ignited got created as a company where we, our, our mission is singular, and that is to help people find their own path to being ignited. Um, we call our online program for people who struggle with addiction the HERO program, and we call the system that, uh, that we work with in the SPARK system. So it's all kind of fire-based, and the SPARK system is there to have a lot of different sparks, a lot of different potential starting points to help you ignite your fire. Because I know for a fact, and I've seen it happen hundreds of times now, the moment that switch goes off in somebody and they understand why their recovery matters, it's easier not to drink. It's easier to drink less. It's easier to beat the shame and talk to the people in your life about what truly matters. It's easier to repair relationships. And as you mentioned before, you know, with that bow and arrow example, it's easier to get comfortable with yourself because I'm not a perfect human being and I will never be a perfect human being. And if I'm only trying to make myself better for my own self-service, it's okay, but I, I don't really care about it all that much. If I'm trying to make myself better for the betterment of the world and the people around me and for the improvement of their life and all of humanity, I will work all day to improve myself in that service. And I see that in people day in and day out, when they realize the hoops they're willing to jump through, when they realize that if they get better, the world gets better, it's, hmm. it's magical. So the sparks program, that's, I love that. I didn't pick up on that when I was, I was trying to figure out the, 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 uh, you know, what, what each of those letters meant they don't actually add up. So it was like, we yeah. were going like, what is, but it no, was, uh, so I didn't pick up on the sparks, but I love that. And the sparks mean that you're lighting little sparks for people to get what excited and passionate about their life. Do you guide them like career wise? Yeah, so, you hope exactly. So I, I was very serious and I'll give you an example of what I'm going to persuade you to do for the exact same system. When you talk about these Ayurvedic principles, they make complete sense in the context of what we do with Ignited, right? So at some point in the near future, watch out everybody who listens to this podcast, I'm going to talk to you about creating a workshop on how these principles relate back to addiction. And then what we do is when people come into our program, we give them assessments and we present them with content that is relevant to who they are, how old they are, the specific problem they struggle with, et cetera. Right now, the hero program is the primary program in it. But eventually, there'll be an Ayurvedic program and a Buddhist-based program and a, and, a, and a Jewish program and a Christian program and a CBT program and a neuroscience program. So everybody can come in with whatever they think is already going to spark their interest. And they mm -hmm. start there. 
And then as they keep moving through it, new concepts that they didn't even know they needed to look into will, will become present. Like if you came in for neuroscience and we have an entire course on the neuroscience of addiction and how to make it better, you're still probably going to potentially benefit from mindfulness and meditation. So we'll throw in some mindfulness content and you'll see if you like it or not. And we'll help you select the one that works. CBT will come in and out. Ayurvedic principles will come in and out. And we're kind of going to let you taste all these different things. And the ones you like, you will get more of. The ones you don't like, you will get less of. And eventually what it'll help people do is be able to collect their own toolkit. And every time when they log in, they'll be able to dig through the toolkit that works for them individually versus that one size fits all solution, which is why it didn't work for your friends. I love it. Um, I'm curious, you know, you were sober at 26, you're now mid forties. Um, when you look back, did those years of abuse, um, are you, do you still live any of the consequences of that just physically, mentally, and emotionally, or do you feel like you've completely hundred percent recovered? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. Well, hormonally, I think I, I ended up dealing with some negative effects of, you know, when you're on meth for five, six years, um, you don't sleep and you drain your body's resources terribly. So for instance, by the age of 30, Five, thirty-seven, maybe 38, my testosterone levels were dropping like crazy. Uh, now, when you imagine, I literally, and I'm not embellishing here, I would, I would be up for three to four days at a time, sleep for nine to 10 hours, and then wake up and go three to four days again back in my met days. Your body needs the rest in between. My um, testosterone and my thyroid levels were shot. So yeah. I'm now on hormone replacement, for instance. That's probably one of the few long-standing effects of my early use that I know of. Um, but what I'll say is this, many of the problems that I hid from for the seven, eight years of heavy, heavy drug use that I had, they were still waiting for me when I got sober, right? They didn't go away. Um, and so I've had to work on a lot of those things. Um, I didn't grow up in a household that was very emotionally connected. We were very big doers, but we weren't how to talk about feelings and how to have feelings and recognize them was not an issue. Well, I only really realized that about eight years ago and that's ongoing work for me. Um, my temper is pretty short or I get aggravated quickly. There are still a lot of things in my life that I'm constantly working on improving, but in terms of the, um, the true negative consequences of that time, I think I look at them more as lessons now than consequences because those yeah. things taught me a lot and I'm, I'm willing to bear more and I'm willing to handle more because I know how badly things can get. Yeah. I, I call it the game of life, you know, and in Ayurveda, they, they call it the great battle, the Mahabharata, where they are fighting against these, these patterns of behavior in our mind that want us to get, you know, fed from the outside world versus doing inner space and letting who you truly are out. But I prefer to think of it as a game. And when you start to realize like you are, that this is a game and I get to play every day. I get to play this game of you, like you said in the very beginning, waking up every morning and trying to be a better person and realizing how I move the needle some days a little more than others, but every day I move the needle and I know yes. I'm on track to being better and I feel better about myself. And of course, once you have that, you know, now you're one step closer to pulling back that bow and, and hitting the bullseye, you know, and making life really happen for you. Um, Adi, um, let us know how people can get a hold of you. I know you offered some free stuff for the listeners. Can you tell us what that's about? And uh, how, can, how can people get to find you and get a hold of you and get involved? Hopefully people will really listen here and come and, and seek your help. 
Love it. Love it. Um, so absolutely. First of all, if you go to ignited.com, I G N T D.com forward slash secret, uh, I put a little thing for your listeners, which is that wheel of life exercise that we give our users to just kind of identify where they need some help in their own life. Uh, mm-hmm. There's also a little, a little other uh, resource there, the recovery roadmap that we use with a lot of our people. And, and so that's free for them. They can use it whenever they want. We also are offering two free weeks of our Sparks platform, if, if that sounds interesting to somebody and they want to explore it. And, you know, in terms of services, those are probably the things. But we have a lot. I've recorded many, many podcasts. I have a feeling you're going to be on one of them pretty soon. And so uh, if you go to ignited.com forward slash podcast, or you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or anywhere else. Um, I think we're up to 500 or 600 episodes at this point. A lot of stuff to listen to. Um, and the book is available for as little as $2.50, I think, at theabstinencemyth.com, all the way up to about $12.99 on Amazon uh, for a paperback, but I think $3.69 for Kindle or something like that. So we try to make it very widely and easily available for people. Um, the goal is just to give people all the resources that they need. All right. The book, The Abstinence Myth, the website is ignited. It's igntd.com, okay? Ignited. Absolutely. Adi, thank you so much for all your work. Thanks for joining us. Hope you have you back. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. This recording is brought to you by Life Spa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at lifespa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.